jobs have changed and some have been replaced, but we've all seen that suddenly new jobs have come in. What will be important is to constantly monitor in terms of what skills are needed. Do we need to upskill or reskill people to adapt to these new technologies? Hello, everybody. We're here together today with my colleague Dina Stenholz, Vice President at Capgemini Consulting, to discuss unleashing the potential of artificial intelligence in the public sector, because we're hearing a huge amount about the benefits of artificial intelligence in the private sector, how it can help target marketing activities and such. But the public sector isn't a topic that has been this, uh, developed this far. So my name is Wendy Carrara, Principal Consultant, Capgemini Consulting, working on uh, data-related topics for the past years. Dinan, do you want to introduce yourself very briefly? Yes. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Dinan Tinnolt. Um, and uh, as Wendy mentioned, I'm focused on uh, digital transformation topics for the public sector. And, uh, and mostly do so for the European, uh, the European Union, but also other uh, governments and international organizations across, uh, across the world. And as you rightly say, there's been a lot of attention for artificial intelligence over the past year or so. And the other thing is, uh, why is this taking place now as artificial intelligence has been developing since the 1950s? And I think that's because of, uh, of two key reasons. One is there's been a lot of um, development in hardware and software, um, allowing it technically to uh, to realize the benefits at the moment. And secondly, there's an increasing amount of data that's available now, whether it's uh, from data that businesses and governments collect directly or from IoT sensors and, uh, and such. And data, of course, is one of the key ingredients uh, for machines to actually learn from. And so the combination of these factors, I think, allows for the benefits now to truly come to light and for businesses and governments to work on getting value from them. Exactly, because, I mean, artificial intelligence, as you rightly say, is uh, a branch of computer science, and we're all aiming towards building intelligent machines, intelligent computers, intelligent applications. So it's all around data, correct? And it's about knowledge, it's about solving problems, it's about learning. And, and here we're actually seeing three types of, uh, of AIs emerge. Maybe you would like to tell us a bit more about what you call reactive automators, adaptive assistants, and autonomous imaginators, as those are the three main clusters uh, for AI that we're seeing emerge today. Yes, uh, and you would actually maybe even call them the sort of evolutionary stages of artificial intelligence. And as we've seen evolution in, the, um, in nature and mankind, uh, we see so with artificial intelligence as well. The first grouping is sort of the reactive side of, uh, of things, where uh, where machines monitor, analyze, and act on the data they get and uh, and propose decisions uh, for that. Then you get more of the adaptive stage, where it's not just uh, getting the data and uh, analyzing it, but also interacting uh, with what's hap whatever's happening based on the data, remembering things, but also anticipating developments from taking place, anticipating environmental events, anticipating economic uh, developments and, uh, and such. So that's more forward-looking. Then you get to the uh, to the third stage, which, which we call autonomous imaginators, and it goes beyond uh, just the data side, but it also has more, I would say, consciousness. It's able to feel, moralize, and create. You even see developments now where artificial intelligence are creating art and creating books and creating music and, uh, and such. So that's uh, what we call the last stage, the autonomous stage. Yes, well, as I recall seeing a, um, a trailer for a movie designed entirely by an artificial intelligence. So 
it's an evolution, and those are functional, I'd say, from acting, analyzing, interacting, monitoring, remembering, anticipating, but also creating that are part of the potential of artificial intelligence. And we're seeing more and more literature around the benefits uh, for the private sector, but here in the public sector, artificial intelligence also goes way back because, I mean, machine uh, learning is also something that the public sector has been uh, has been working on for quite some time as well. But perhaps why isn't it so prominent in the public sector or why is the public sector perhaps shying away from this domain? Actually, I think the public sector is picking up these developments a bit slower than the private sector. Of course, you see the biggest activity going on in places like uh, Silicon Valley, where high-tech uh, companies are uh, are getting the benefits of it. But additionally, you already see some governments across the world uh, getting the benefits of uh, of artificial intelligence combined with uh, a lot of uh, big data and open data. Um, for example, uh, cities in China using artificial intelligence uh, to predict traffic flows and to predict accidents and such and uh, and act upon that. But in general, you often see that public organizations need to be a bit more, I would say, thorough and careful in rolling out certain uh, certain solutions because it does have a societal role. Uh, everything needs to be thoroughly prepared and you need to make sure that there's no downsides which, uh, uh, which can hinder the benefits. Downsides such as biases or discrimination or even security and, and such. So I think governments want to make sure that they can do it properly and thoroughly because businesses and citizens depend on all the services the governments provide. No, exactly. You're right in saying so. And here, uh, despite the fact that governments actually have a huge amount of, uh, of data and public sector information, artificial intelligence is fed by data. It's, of course, fed by algorithms and it's trained to, to behave and to react. But the bulk of the AI is the data in here. Governments also need to make sure that the data they put into into the AI to feed it are uh, are correct. And uh, here here we come a bit more to to a question around uh, the concerns that you were mentioning to say because basically there are two main ways of acquiring data to build an AI system. Either you acquire the data by building your own platform, which is for instance the case of Facebook or LinkedIn, that actually collect personal information and collect data directly on their on the specific infrastructure or there's the other way of uh, acquiring data from somewhere else which can lead to a whole suite of problems that you were mentioning around bias around completeness around consistency around licensing of data uh, and such and yet the government is a bit of both because the public sector actually has its own platforms and its own data collection mechanisms and it's also buying data from the outside, and it's also selling data to, to, to the outside. Okay, so in terms of jobs, we're seeing this in the media, that by 2020 or 2030, up to 80% of the jobs will be completely replaced because of or thanks to, uh, thanks to technology. So we've witnessed this type of industrial revolution or revolution in the past centuries as well. And... The same anxiety has been put forward around the fact that machines are going to replace factory workers and such and such. But many economists or historians are actually disagreeing with that. But what's your view, uh, Dinand, about this? Do you really think artificial intelligence will be such a disruptive factor that it will blow, blow us away in terms of work, uh, work opportunities? 
Well, there's different views on this, and you even see, uh, I would say, some sci-fi writers talking about how artificial intelligence is going to replace everything, and suddenly uh, we don't need to have jobs at all, and we can all just spend our time with leisure activities. I think that's going. Uh, I think that's going too far. It definitely will replace certain jobs. Uh, you already see it where it's replacing administrative workers, but even where it's replacing highly qualified workers, such as doctors and such. But it doesn't mean those those roles will go away. It just means that the nature of the jobs change. You see now doctors using artificial intelligence uh, to predict cancer in uh, in certain cases. The doctors don't go away. Uh, they just become involved in more analytical work and highly uh, value-added work and such. Also, what you see now is people today are fulfilling jobs that didn't exist 20 years ago. And we had the industrial uh, revolution. We had the introduction of computers and, and such. Jobs have changed and some have been replaced, but we've all seen that suddenly new jobs have come in. What will be important is to constantly monitor what skills are needed. Do we need to upskill or reskill people to adapt to these new technologies? But I definitely don't see it as a doomsday prophecy where it'll have a negative job employment effect for the whole of society. Exactly. So summing up, we're talking about more new categories and kinds of jobs that will be created and skills that will need to be developed to, to ensure that these jobs can be fulfilled, but also that everybody can potentially embrace uh, artificial intelligence. Coming back a bit more to um, artificial intelligence in the public sector. So artificial intelligence can be used in all sorts of ways, for instance, protection of citizens in the context of public safety, justice, defense, where natural language processing and machine learning can be used to analyze hundreds of feeds or hundreds of data points. What other examples come to mind uh, when we talk about artificial intelligence in the public sector? I think security is an interesting one, um, such as fire departments uh, using it, but also police departments using it to predict which areas have the highest risk, for example, of, uh, of social uprising and, uh, and such. You see the health domain uh, having lots of potential benefits. I mentioned it being used to uh, to predict cancer in certain uh, in certain cases. The educational sector has lots of uh, advantages as well. Is adapting learning material to specific uh, students, analyzing students' progress to see uh, what needs to be adapted to make sure they uh, uh, to make sure they progress well. But also, just recently, I saw an example in the um, uh, in the public health domain as well, where I would say health information about animals is being used, first of all, uh, to predict the potential spread of animal diseases for animals themselves. So uh, for their health care, it's good, but also uh, to predict the, I would say, the transmission of diseases from animals to people uh, and to prevent that as well. So those are some, uh, those are some areas, but everything from also transportation, uh, transportation management, but also energy management. We see the development of, uh, of smart cities uh, we have lots of sensors which can predict where energy is needed and uh, and where not to save energy as well. So there's a very wide range of examples that are already being used today. Yeah, exactly. And domains as wise, for instance, agriculture as well, where AI can be used to monitor uh, humidity in soils, but also plant growth, etc. So there's not really one sector that sticks out, I would say. It's perhaps some sectors might appear more uh, top uh, on the press, and uh, it's something that's going to be happening mainstream. And what role would the public sector have around this? We're seeing some hints around potential regulation to protect the human part of, of it. I haven't seen any geographies actually embracing that kind of uh, regulation and saying it's a must-have to put forward. On the contrary, it's more about weaving AI into innovation policies. 
do, do you see here some specific countries that uh, might be afraid to go about it, or on the contrary, a process by which public sector could embrace open data? Well, I see actually a lot of enthusiasm about it and encouraging these developments. Uh, of course, we see a lot in the uh, in the U.S., both at the, uh, in the area of, of tech companies, but also governments uh, adopting it. You see the Chinese government investing heavily in this uh, in this field and really want to become a leader in uh, in this domain. But also, I think it was even uh, Dubai recently appointed a minister of artificial intelligence aimed at promoting everything. At the European level, I see uh, I see the EU. Definitely wanting to promote it and uh, encourage these developments and uh, to avoid any regulatory intervention at the moment. At the same time, they are cautious about certain uh, certain downsides, for example, biases in analyzing data and uh, to make sure that there's no discrimination because machines can learn from themselves. But if the machines base themselves on data, which already has certain biases in them, then decision will be biased as well. So there's caution at the same time, enthusiasm and encouraging it. It does bring me to one point, though, and Wendy, I'd like to uh, hear your view on this as well. Um, you see views on where can it be applied, and you see people saying, well, it can be applied to automation, to routine tasks and, and such, to uh, lighten the, uh, the burden in administrative handling of certain things. I mean, yes, that can be done. And people say, you know, AI can be used in situations where humans make a decision within two seconds. But what I'm claiming is you can go even further than this to say, well, Let's go, I would say, to artificial by default uh, to say that any task that we can replace by artificial intelligence, even if it's high value added strategic policy work and such, if it can be done by AI, let's do it uh, through AI and keep the humans for the more complex things where creativity and human intervention is needed. What do you think about this, Wendy? How far should we go with implementing AI for public services? I think that's a very interesting take to say we've had the digital by default and now we could have the artificial intelligence by default. And of course, this would require some pilot phases to have a bit like a shadow cabinet run by AI to be able to understand the checks and balances that would be uh, put in place as we were talking about biases in the data, but also biases in the algorithms. To say it's not just the data, it's the way you train the AI to learn that might be biased as well to actually pilot and see how it works out. Because indeed, here, you mentioned that complexity is more creative tasks, and on the contrary, I believe that the creativity can, can be stimulated because the human mind will be freed from repetitive tasks and complicated, stressful tasks that can be picked up by, uh, by artificial intelligence. And if we look at uh, the creative sector booming in the 1960s, well, all of this was also thanks to the fact that more and more manual activities had been replaced by things like washing machines, Etc. that actually gave people the time to reflect on media, on culture, and on a number of activities. And here, with artificial intelligence, we're potentially freeing up more time from our daily lives to focus on the creative sector, which is also what we're seeing in the terms of uh, the universal revenue that some countries are looking into, which might actually be an interesting counterplay if we have that conversation about jobs again, to say, well, will we still have to work in the sense of the way we're working today, and will artificial intelligence, whether it's algorithms or robots, actually take up that role to free us and to put us into uh, the creative sector? Yeah. This being said, uh, that there are still quite a step to get to that, but I believe that it would be very interesting for international organizations such as the UN, who've just set up a reflection on artificial intelligence, or the European Union, 
to start funding some pilots in that respect to make sure that the right checks and balances are put in place to experiment with it correctly. Yeah. I think that's an interesting view. I actually have to smile at the idea of having a artificial intelligence shadow cabinet. It actually reminds me of my um, with my Amazon Alexa and my Google Home, which are both in my living room, talking to each other. Suddenly, you can actually get a debate between machines without human intervention. So that'll provide a lot of different uh, different perspectives. So what we see here, there's a lot of potential, a lot of creativity uh, going on. And I think it's now, as you said, now's the right time to explore this, to try it out, to pilot with it, and to see you know what things we should watch out for, but also what uh, what value we can uh, we can get from it. Final question to you, Wendy. So if a government listens to this and say, well, how do we proceed with this? What are some of the first steps we should do in realizing these benefits? What are some initial steps they should take? Well, as governments are working on public sector information and building a data infrastructure, they're part of what's called the data economy today, but the value of the data economy is only in the use that will be made of the data. I would say to, to move forward with data digitization and then to explore and map what kinds of processes and procedures could be fully automated. And from there, from automation, go to machine learning to say, how can we design algorithms to, to learn and to process uh, the data that's collected and improve the procedures? And from there, actually use AI as algorithms to potentially inspire decision making or even autonomous decisions in, uh, in the fact that, for instance, allocating pensions or allocating places at school or uh, releasing funding to, uh, to specific levels of government. So there's, there are quite a, things, a few things that could be done, but it, of course, starts off with a mapping of what data is made available and what checks and balances can be put in place because the success of artificial intelligence, I would say, whether it's the, in the public or in the private sector, depends on addressing security concerns, privacy mm -hmm. concerns, as well as uh, objectivity. And by implementing artificial intelligence, you're putting your trust in technology and in the quality of the data that's been put into into the computer to help make a decision, which is a decision for the best. That's why I was talking about pilots to ensure that checks and balances are put in to correct potential biases and to make sure that we're not leading uh, and making decisions for the wrong reason. Yeah, no, I think those are good points. Um, so for anyone who wants to know more about this, uh, what's good to know is uh, Capgemini recently did a big study of nearly 1,000 organizations implementing AI, uh, highlighting the uh, growth opportunities of AI and um, and basically explaining how you can get the benefits and how we should not fear for the downside, but just to be cautious of, conscious of those uh, and truly take the next steps to realize the benefits. In addition to that, a specific point of view was, uh, was published on realizing artificial intelligence for the public sector and uh, some examples uh, of that and also how you should implement uh, this. So for anyone who's more interested in this, please look either Wendy Carrara or myself, Dino Tinold, up online uh, at Twitter or LinkedIn, uh, or visit capgemini.com to find those papers that I was mentioning. And feel free to reach out to us if you have any further questions or comments. Thanks a lot for your time. Okay, thank you very much, Dinant. And uh, please follow either Dinant Tinhold at Tinholt or W. Carrara and myself on Twitter. And stay tuned for further information about artificial intelligence. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.